The following message is from North Place Church. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com. Today is the first Sunday on the official calendar for Advent, and uh, we begin our four-week march towards our candlelight Christmas Eve services where we will intimately celebrate the birth of our Savior. Over the next four weeks, we're going to celebrate the spiritual depth of Christmas and Advent by studying a series of messages that we've entitled, The Name. We're going to focus for a month on the names of God, especially those names that are revealed in connection with Christ's birth. I want our time together today to be centered around answering three key questions. Okay, I'm going to talk our whole framework of our conversation today is going to be centered around answering three key questions. The first question is, what is Advent? The second question is, why are the names of God so significant? And the third question is, what are the names of God that have the most significance during the Advent Christmas season? So let's just, let's start our conversation together today around that first question. What is Advent? I've grown up in a church context that talked a lot about Christmas but very little about the concept of Advent. I've known that Advent and Christmas all happened around the same time of year. They were synonymous in many ways, but I never really knew growing up why some churches talked a lot about Advent and other churches talked a lot about Christmas. For those of you who grew up in Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, Episcopalian, or Catholic backgrounds, you probably have a better understanding of Advent than others do. For those of us who grew up in evangelical churches, churches like Baptist or non-denominational or charismatic and Pentecostal churches, most likely you didn't hear a lot about Advent. And if you did, you were the exception rather than the rule. And why is that the case? Well, it boils down to the basic difference between liturgical churches and non-liturgical churches. In liturgical churches, they follow a very structured, often very ornate, order to their services. The order has a prescribed set of scripture readings and often it's responsive readings between the pastor or the the, the presiding priest and those who are in the congregation. They do prescribed scripture readings. There's a prescribed sermon or a homily as it's called in the liturgy and there are certain prescribed songs that to be sung that connect with the theme of that day. That detailed order and service structure is called a liturgy. But the liturgy extends beyond the worship experience on one particular day. The liturgy in liturgical churches is planned out every Sunday, 52 Sundays for an entire year, and that calendar is called the liturgical, chal- uh, the, the liturgical calendar. Churches in the same denomination that are liturgical churches often work off the same calendar. They have the same sermon topics on any given Sunday. They read the same scriptures, oftentimes sing the same songs, and they do that all over the world, and it brings a feeling of connectedness and community with those that are in their family of faith. Let me just ask for curiosity's sake, those of you who have roots into liturgical backgrounds, you either came from that or you have roots there and you understand Advent, the Advent candles, and the Advent wreath. If that's you and you have roots to a liturgical church of some sort, would you raise your hand just, just out of curiosity because I know we have a vast number of you represented here. It's about equivalent to the first service as well. Churches whose services are less scripted or more organic are often called non-liturgical. 
Those churches operate independent of their denominations. When it, so nobody, no bishop, no priest, nobody, no denominational authority tells a non-liturgical church what the sermon topic's going to be today or what the songs they're going to sing today. They don't determine the ministry themes. They operate on their own independent church calendars. And obviously, North Place is a non-liturgical church. But even in non-liturgical churches like ours, we have an unofficial, unwritten liturgy because you walk into most non-liturgical churches, they have the same format, unspoken though. They go by every Sunday. You come to North Place, we're going to have an opening video, three or four worship songs, we're going to have announcements, an offering, a sermon, a time of prayer, and a benediction at the end. I mean, that is our unwritten liturgy, even though we are considered a non-liturgical church. Years ago, evangelical churches, especially many spirit-filled churches, broke away and distanced themselves from anything that resembled a liturgy because a liturgy was considered empty ritual. It was considered confining. It didn't provide room for the Holy Spirit to move. There was thought to be no freedom in the liturgy, and some people saw it as a dead religion. And in the context of that idea, many of us were guilty of criticizing our brothers and sisters from liturgical churches for worshiping the liturgy more than the Lord. And while it may be true, some people were more in love with the liturgy than they were the Lord, that's not the case in every situation, and you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. For a lot of people, the structure, the liturgy, the predictability, the ritual actually help them connect with God. One may find the liturgy confining, the other may find it a meaningful way to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Personally, for my own family, and the broader context of this church, I would like for us to go back and rediscover the deep theological meaning of Advent. And Advent has been celebrated in these liturgical churches for centuries, and I think it's so rich theologically, it would be something worthwhile for us to recapture, because there is a rich theology behind it, and it's rooted in the deep part of church history. I think the reason that you see a lot of churches like North Place going back and returning to the idea of Advent is because of the secularization of Christmas. The more the concept of Christmas is hijacked by our secular culture, the more we as followers of Jesus look for words and symbols that truly articulate the spiritual depth and the deep theological meaning of what this season is all about. And Advent is one of those words that is full of power. The word Advent literally means coming or arrival. The focus of this entire season is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. It is His first Advent or His first arrival or the inbreaking of God into human history. It's celebrating, Advent is celebrating the willingness of God to identify with the frailty of man by becoming one of us so that He might save us. That's what incarnation literally means. God put on our skin. God became one of us that He might save us. But Advent does more than focus on the salvation of man in the here and now. Advent also looks forward to the second coming or the second advent of Jesus Christ into the world with expectancy and anticipation. 
Advent has a double focus. It looks back on the past when Christ came as a baby in a manger in the first Advent and it anticipates with longing the future Advent of Christ when He comes back to earth again. So this month-long journey of Advent that begins today is a symbolic journey of us as individuals and as a congregation moving towards the inbreaking of God into human history as we will celebrate on Christmas Day. We celebrate in this month the fact that Christ has come. The kingdom of God is here. We celebrate that He is present in our world right now. But we look forward to the day when He will come in full power and full revelation. You see, there is a now to the kingdom of God and there is a not yet of the kingdom of God. Jesus came the first time very meek and mild as an innocent baby in a manger. But what we understand and what we anticipate is the God that broke into human history as a baby in a manger in the first advent is coming again in the second advent and when He comes, He's not going to be that meek and mild baby in a manger. When He comes in the second advent, He's going to be a conquering king wearing a robe with a name that has no man has ever held before, named King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there is a looking to the past and there is an anticipation of the future in this concept of Advent. When we truly understand this, when we get this, Advent has a way of recalibrating our life. It provides a kingdom lifestyle mentality because holy living arises from a profound sense that we live in the between time. We live in between the first and second advent. We live in between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We live in between paradise lost in Garden of Eden and paradise restored at the end of the book of Revelation. We are people of the in-between And God has given us power. And we are living between those two advents. And we are called to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to His people who live in the in-between. The concept of advent is so theologically rich. It is so spiritually deep that I could take up all of our time together today talking about the concept of advent. And I think that's why it lasts four weeks is because it gives us the opportunity to squeeze the the juice fully out of what it really means. I want to go back to that concept in just a moment, but right now let me look at the second question that will frame our conversation. That's a little introduction of what Advent is, but let me answer the second question. Why are the names of God so significant? In Scripture, God reveals Himself to us through His name. So to fully grasp the significance of God's names, you have to understand the importance of names in an ancient culture. In Old Testament times, a name was more than a nomenclature or a title. A name revealed important information about that individual. A name was so important in a biblical setting that Scripture frequently mentions God Himself changing someone's name to reflect a new reality in that person's life. Abram which means exalted father, was changed to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Jacob, whose name meant grabber of the heel and deceitful, received a new name after wrestling with God. His new name, Israel, meant one who prevails. In the book of Hosea, God changed the name of Hosea's son and daughter in order to reflect the change of relationship status between Israel and God. 
Israel had been running away in the book of Hosea, prostituting itself away from God, living in spiritual adultery away from the Father. And yet God is pursuing Israel, pursuing after her to return her back to Himself. And God changes the names of Hosea's son and daughter to reflect the change in relationship status as Israel returns back to God. For example, Loamai means not my people, the name was changed to Amai, which means my people. Lo Ruhama, which means not pitied, became Ruhama, which means one who is shown compassion. A new name meant a new reality because the name reflected something about the individual. Moving into the New Testament in John 1.42, we see Jesus talking to Simon, one of his new disciples. He says this, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The significance of the Greek word Cephas or Peter is Petros, which means rock. In Scripture, a name revealed purpose. It revealed authority. It revealed makeup. It revealed character. A name of an individual in Scripture was the equivalent of who that person was. If you knew the meaning behind a person's name, you knew the person. In John 17, 26, Jesus is praying to the Father, and He says this in His prayer, I have made your name known to them and will make it known. He didn't make God's name known because He got up and shouted the name. He made God's name known because He embodied the name. Jesus was saying, in my person, in my power, in my presence, I have made the name of God known. In Jesus, God came to earth in the flesh and unveiled His heart, His mind, His will, His character, and His being through the person and revelation of the name of Jesus Christ. Because the depth of God's character, He has many, many names that reflect the many, many ways that He relates to us as human beings. For example, one of His names is Elohim. He reveals Himself as Elohim when revealing Himself as the all-powerful Creator. He is referred to as Jehovah Nissi, the Lord's banner of victory. And let me say this to you today. If you're in a battle for your life, if you're in a battle for your marriage, if you're in a battle in some area of your life, you need to get to know Jehovah Nissi, the revelation of the character of God who goes before you in battle. In those days when they went to war, they would carry His name before them into battle. He was Jehovah Nissi, the Lord that went before them in victory into battle. And if you need victory today, you need to acquaint yourself with the name Jehovah Nissi. You need to allow your faith to grab a hold of the fact that name reveals a part of the character of God and believe that that Jehovah Nissi is going before you in battle as well and you too will be victorious. Another name is Jehovah Rapha, our Lord, your healer. And when you're in need of provision, you need to get to know the name Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. God has a name wherever you have a need. God has a name for every situation you find yourself in. Listen carefully. His name is revealed in your need. Every time God was given a name in the Bible, 
that name was born out of experiences that people had with him in the moment of crisis or in the moment of power encounter in the scripture. God would encounter man, reveal an aspect of his character, and man would name God something because of an experience they had with him. Genesis 22, you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. Look at how he got the name Jehovah Jireh. It means our Lord will provide. Genesis 22, 6 Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. The two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide. It's the first time in the Bible you ever see the words in the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. Because Abraham believed that he was a provider, he named him Jehovah Jireh in that particular moment. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offerings, my son. And the two of them went on together. And you know the story. Abraham came off of the mountain with his son Isaac that he had gone up to sacrifice because God provided a sacrifice in the bushes and Abraham experienced the character and the nature of God as the Lord who will provide Jehovah Jireh. Abraham experienced that aspect of God's character and he understood him by name. In our culture, we have a phrase, I know him by name. In other words, my kids will ask me if, if, if somebody knows me, you know, um, so-and-so that's famous, you know, I, I said that I knew who they were. D- d- did you just meet them passing by or, or did they, d- do you really know them? I'm like, no, we know each other by name. We are, we are more than just acquaintances. We are friends. And, and, and the phrase, I know them by name or they know me by name, is it, is it a phrase of closeness that we really know each other? Abraham, when he came off of the Mount Moriah, he knew the character of God's provision. He knew that God by name. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't something that went on in somebody else's life. He had firsthand experienced powerfully the revelation of Jehovah Jireh. I'm believing as we begin to study the names of God over the next four weeks and we look into His character as revealed in His name, some of you are going to let your faith grab a hold of the character of God as revealed in the name Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals you. Some of you are going to learn Jehovah Nisi, the God who fights for you in battle. Some of you are going to learn Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, who provides peace in the midst of the storm. Some of you are going to learn Jehovah Shama. That just simply means the God who is there. Jehovah Shama was the God who was the fourth man in the fiery furnace. You just need to know you're not walking through the valley of the shadow of death alone, but He is with you. That is Jehovah Shammah. He is healer. He is savior. He is deliverer. He is a way maker. And what I'm challenging you to do over the next month as we go through the Advent season, you find your need and there is a name of God in the scripture. You let your faith grab a hold of that revelation of God's character and hold on to that name because he will be that God to you in this particular season of your life. We're going to make this very practical. When you come into the building next Sunday, there will be an area of our uh, lobby that will be set up with two crosses. Every, each cross will have 720 holes drilled in the cross. And beside them, there will be a notepad. 
One of those crosses will be a needs cross, and the other will be a cross for praise and testimony. In other words, some of us have needs in our life, and we're going to search this week a, a, a name of God as revealed in the Scripture that reveals an aspect of God's character, a name that we need at this moment. And we're going to come to that cross, and we're going to write our need And we're going to write the name of God that we need to visibly show up in our life at this moment. We're going to roll it up and place it in that cross by faith. So one of the crosses is going to be prayer request. On the other side, there are some of us who have experienced the names of God in powerful ways. He has been our Jehovah Rapha. He has been our Jehovah Jireh. He's healed us. He's provided for us. He's saved us. Whatever. He's delivered us. We have a testimony because we have experienced Him in that revelation of His name. We're going to write the name that we've experienced and the testimony of how we experience God in that name briefly and we're going to roll it up and we're going to put it in that cross one cross is for needs one cross is for testimony we need him in this area of our life we need to know his name and we've already met his name in the other cross what I'm believing as we acquaint ourselves with the names of God during this Advent season needs that were in these holes are going to be moved to the 720 holes over here and they're going to become prayer because God is going to make himself known as we begin to identify and glorify his name. Here's the last question for today. Which names of God have the most significance during the Advent and Christmas season? You saw it in the opening video, and it's going to be our theme verse every Sunday during Advent. Isaiah 9 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it up with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. In order to appreciate, and, and this every week you see these four names revealed. There's going to come a son who's going to be born, an infant child is going to be born, and, and he's, going to, he's going to be the king that we've been waiting on, and he's going to bear these four names. And each week we're going to focus on one of those four names. But to understand the the the, the depth and the weight of what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 9, 6, you have to see this verse in its context. Isaiah was ministering during a very difficult time in the history of Israel. There had been a promise given long ago that there would be one who would come that would sit on David's throne who would be mightier than King David. The whole nation of Israel was anticipating and waiting that king. And every time a new king took the throne, the question is, is it him? Is that the guy that we've been waiting on? When Isaiah wrote verse 1 of his book, it started this way. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. These four kings. 
when, when, when Isaiah names these kings, their names were just as real and practical to Isaiah's audiences as the name Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama would be to ours. These were the names of the kings of Israel who had failed as men and leaders to fulfill the long-awaited expectation to be the one they were waiting on. They were waiting on the king who would be above all kings. And every one of these four and every one of the kings that had come before them had failed miserably to live up to that expectations. So in the first nine chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes, writes a lot of bleak things about Israel, about her sin. The nation has been led into sin by a lot of weak and frail kings. And Isaiah gives a lot of bleak prophecies about the judgment of God and the future of Israel. But in the middle of all of these dire prophecies, he laces them with small hints of hope. He talks about how human kings have failed and where Israel is headed and the judgment of God that is coming. And yet in Isaiah 17, he drops a hint that there is a king coming. A son will be born. And then you get to Isaiah chapter 9 and he begins to name him and begins to talk about the government resting on his shoulders and how his rule and his reign will last forever. So this is dire circumstance with these small little laces of hope that are dropped in. There is one coming mightier than Hezekiah. There is one coming mightier than Uzziah. There is one coming that is mightier than Jotham. And he keeps saying, the king of kings is coming. He will break into human history. God will not be a liar. And when he begins chapter 9, the whole message becomes one of hope. And as he starts to deliver this message of hope about this coming king who's going to break into human history, he compares the coming king with the failed kings of the past. He says this, verse 7 of Isaiah 9, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Isaiah had seen kings come and go. He had watched kings in his lifetime that had ruled and they wondered, was this guy the one? And he died. And now he's serving under the reign of Hezekiah and he knows that Hezekiah too will die. He knows that Hezekiah is not the one. But when he writes about this coming king, he differentiates the coming king, the weighted king, the one who's going to break into human history from all the other kings because while they served for a season and it was over, When this king breaks into human history, there will be no end to his reign. He will reign forevermore. Notice the other kings. If you read the first chapters of Isaiah, those other kings had been unable to shoulder the weight of the government of God's people. They failed. But in contrast, in Isaiah 9-6, Isaiah says this, and the government will be on his shoulders. In contrast to every other leader, political and spiritual leader in Israel's history that has led them into this dire spiritual state, when this king comes, the government will rest firmly on his shoulders. He is able to bear the full weight and responsibility of Israel's hope, of Israel's future, of Israel's past sin. What Isaiah is saying to them and what Isaiah is saying to us, you can trust this king because the government can firmly rest on his shoulders he is able this king can bear the full weight and responsibility of what he's come to do and then Isaiah begins to reveal the character of the coming king 
by telling us His names. A name and a character that is vastly different than any king that has gone before Him. He calls Him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to look at one name each Sunday in the next three weeks in greater detail than today. But today I want us to focus, before we leave, on the name Wonderful Counselor. If a reporter had stuck a mic in King Hezekiah's face and said, King Hezekiah, who is your counselor? Hezekiah would have said, the prophet Isaiah. He hears from God and he tells me what God is saying. And I make decisions based on what God is saying. I, I, I lead politically based on what God says through Isaiah. Isaiah is my counselor. Every king had advisors and counselors. Every king. Some of them had good counselors, some of them had bad counselors, but every king had counselors. And when Isaiah is comparing this coming king to every king that had come before him, he calls him the wonderful counselor because this is the only king who will need no counsel. He is the counsel above all counsel. He is the wisdom above all wisdom. He is the knowledge above all knowledge. He will seek counsel from nowhere because his word is sufficient. He is a wonderful Counselor, different from everyone that has gone before him. And the word wonderful, in Isaiah 9, 6, in the Hebrew, the word wonderful is pela. The meaning is simply wonder. That's what, what, what it means. Wonder, hard to understand, marvelous, extraordinary. What that means is the wonder about Him is so great that it is hard for us to get our human brains around. There is an emphasis here on the concepts of inexplicable, abnormal. And the word hard is the simplest word that we could use here to get the idea across. Really hard. Things that are really hard to do, really hard to explain, really hard to have happen. These are the things that are beyond human capacity. And yet those are the kinds of things we need in our life. The really hard things. The inexplicable things. We need those in our marriages. We need those in our physical bodies. We need those in our business and in our financial situation. We we need something beyond human capacity. And when Isaiah is giving this message of hope where every king has failed, when he tells us the wonderful counselor is coming, he's saying when problems are unsolvable, you will have a pala when that king comes. When solutions are inaccessible, you will have a pala when that king comes. When tasks are too difficult for us, you will have a pala when that king comes. He is abnormal. He is inexplicable. He is supernatural. He is a wonderful counselor. The theme of the first Sunday of Advent is hope. Hope. And friends, there is a reason today for you to have hope. Because you have a Pela. You have an inexplicable, abnormal, supernatural, wonderful counselor. 
There is reason for hope because the message of Advent all season long is a yearly reminder to us that God broke into human history once as a baby in a manger and we anticipate Him to break into human history again as He returns as a conquering King. But the promise is that while we live in between the two Advents that the God who broke into human history once is a God who can break into human history in your life. He can break in His healer. He can break in His Savior. He can break in His deliverer. He can break in His provider. If He can break in through a virgin birth and be a swaddling child in a manger, He can break in and be your healer and your Savior and your hope. There is hope for your situation. Somebody said, well, Pastor, I just have a hard time believing that God, I know He broke into history 2,000 years ago, but I just have a hard time believing that God could break into my situation. And I don't get how our belief in deep theological truths does not translate to a belief in our everyday life. If you're going to celebrate Christmas, you believe that a teenage Jewish girl turned up pregnant without ever having relationship with a man, and when the baby was born, she told everybody that God was the Father. And you say you believe that. If you can believe that God could break into this world through a virgin birth, if you can mentally and intellectually ascend to that inexplicable happening, then why can you not believe the same God that broke into human history there can inexplicably and abnormally break into your life? There is hope. When I was a kid, I was 16 years old when God called me to preach. I lived enough sin 16 years to make up for an entire life. And when God saved me out of my alcohol addiction and thievery to support the addiction, He radically changed me. And I had more preaching me than I had people that would listen. And I preached on the pond levee, looking my grandfather's muddy pond, cows in the background, fish in the front. And I'd preach. I didn't really know how to pray, and I didn't really know how to preach. But when the fish quit flopping, I assumed they'd quit listening, and I'd preach to the cows. And when the cows quit mooing, I assumed they'd quit listening, I'd preach to the trees, but I learned to preach, pacing back and forth down that pond levee. I learned to pray on that pond levee, and I used to not know what to say, but there was something that happened on the inside of me when I began to memorize the names of God that were revealed in Scripture. I memorized them alphabetically, and I prayed a lot of things, preached a lot of things on that pond levee that was just a bunch of noise, but something happened on the inside of me when I began to recite and memorize alphabetically the names of God. Nobody was listening as far as I know. I was yelling at the top of my lungs in prayer and preaching the names of God that I had memorized. I don't know. what I didn't know at that time the, the, the theological depth of those names revealing His character, but there was something inside of me that knew there was some spiritual depth to the names of God. Three degrees later, looking back, I know that those may have been needs in my own life that I was crying out to know that aspect of God's character. 
I wanted to know Him by that name. And through the years, I have learned Him by that name. But this is the list. I pull my hearts down that levee. Some preaching, some praying, some praising. But I would call Him Alpha, Omega, beginning in the end. The Advocate, the Almighty, the Bread of Life, the Bright and Morning Star, the Counselor, the Chief Cornerstone, the Door, the Deliverer, Elect, Emmanuel, Everlasting Father, the Hope of Glory, the I Am, the Lily of the Valley, the Light of the World, the Master, the Messiah, the Mighty God, the Prophet, the Propitiation, the Rabbi, the Rock, the Rose of Sharon, the Root of Jesse, the Way, the Wonderful Counselor, His name is Jesus, and because He's still on the throne, you have hope. Come on, stand with me all over this place, if you will. This first Sunday of Advent, the theme is hope. Some of you are very familiar with the Advent wreath. You know that there are three purple candles and a pink candle. and Every color has a significance that connects with the theme. This Sunday, we light the first candle on the official liturgical church calendar all over the world today. Churches of various denominational stripes will light the candle that signifies hope. Next week we move to a new theme and another candle. And every week when we light another candle, the anticipation grows as we get closer to the inbreaking of God that we celebrate into human history. And today, with faith, knowing He is our wonderful, our Pela, our wonderful counselor, we light the candle that represents hope today. We light it in faith that He will be hope to us, that He will be hope for us, that He will impart faith to our spirits today. Now listen, I know there's some people out here, I believe this is hope for your family. It is hope for us as a church. It is hope for us as a nation. And there are some folks who I've talked to, and you know, it's a political year, and a lot of folks are down in the mouth and about Republicans. A lot of folks down in the mouth about Democrats. And a lot of folks mad at everybody because nobody's good enough. And I understand all that. I, I, I got it. I know the world's in a bad shape. I, I know you can read your Bible and, and see prophecy unfolding. I get all that. But there are a lot of folks that are giving up. They've thrown in the towel. They, they're like, there is no hope. I mean, look at our school systems and, and, and look at the situation families are in. And we're losing ground in America. And, and, and they, they've thrown in hope. And listen to me. I understand that. I see reality. I'm a realist. But as long as I can light that candle, that means that the king that is above all kings that was greater than Hezekiah or any of the other kings has not vacated his throne. And every time I light the candle of hope, it reminds me that the king that took David's seat who will reign forever and the government will rest upon his shoulders and of his government there will be no end. He is still on his throne. And when I light that candle, there is still hope for the world. Hope for Wiley. Hope for Murphy. Hope for Saxe. Hope for Garland. Hope for your family because the king is still on his throne. There is hope. Because he's a Pela, an inexplicable, abnormal, supernatural counselor. I want our prayer team to come today and position themselves to serve you. Listen to me, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, 
maybe the maybe what you need to do is the most powerful and most important name you will ever learn is Jesus. Know him as Yeshua. It means Savior, Deliverer. Today, these people that are coming to pray are full of anticipation and excitement to talk to you about your relationship with God. I'm going to ask when we come, if, if you need to surrender your life to Christ, let one of them know. Let one of them pray with you. Others of you in this room today who desperately need hope, let Him be wonderful counselor to you. Some of you need Jehovah Rapha, your healer. You need Jehovah Nisi, the one that goes before you in battle. You need Jehovah Shalom, peace in the storm. You need Jehovah Jireh, provider. Maybe you don't even know a name. You got a need. I'm telling you, there's a name for your need. A name of God that will meet your need. But maybe you don't know it. Ask one of us up here that are praying today, do you know a name that I can believe God? A name revealed in Scripture of God that shows His character that I can believe in this week, this month, for my family, for my life. And let us pray with you that your faith grabs a hold of that name, that revelation of His character so that you see it. Over the next month, I believe that those 720 holes in those two crosses, some of them needs, some of them praises, Some of us need Him to be that name. Others of us have experienced Him in one of these names. We're going to see those holes filled with needs and praise. Today, we can pray with you that the miracle begins. That God begins to show Himself. That He imparts hope into your situation. Let us pray with you today. I'm going to to speak a blessing over your life. I'm going to speak a prayer. And even as I pray, the altars are open. You're welcome to come. So Lord, I pray that this journey through Advent would not be just vain repetition, but it would immerse us deeply into a season of kingdom expansion. It would immerse us deeply into a season of spiritual growth that we would know You by name in the next few weeks. Beginning today, will You impart hope Remind us that Your kingdom will know no end. That Your kingdom has come. That You rule and reign over every situation that could be represented here. And You revealed Yourself by name in a way that meets that need. Let us learn to know You by name. Will You bless them and keep them? Will You make Your face shine down upon them? Will You be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction? And will you give them peace? In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to duplicate or to share this message. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com.